Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight at. Joe's Pub in New York City. We have got an audience full of very smart people, and we'll bring them on stage to tell us something interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. And if everything goes as planned, we will all be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, one of my favorite humans, the psychologist and best-selling author of Grit, Angela Duckworth. Hi, Angela. Let's rehearse what we know about you so far. We know that you are a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and you're founder and CEO of the Character Lab, correct? Yes, all true. We know you've won a MacArthur Genius Award, and we know that your book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, has changed lives around the world, we assume mostly for the better. I hope that's true. We even know you keep your office desk stocked with an inordinate amount of bubble gum. Is that okay, true? that is recently changed. Yeah. Because I grind my teeth. Does any, anyone grind teeth at night? Is it just me? Okay. Wow. So uh, I don't want to build up the muscles, so I'm trying to not chew things, including gum. Well, has the grinding stopped? It's, I don't know, but it's maybe getting a little less. All right. That's more than I wanted to know about your uh, sleeping. But um, Angela, tell us something we don't know about you, please, then. Uh, let's see. As a professor, you would think that I'm, I'm pretty good at thinking. But when I was a management consultant at McKinsey, I took the Myers-Briggs type mm-hmm. indicator. Uh, I'm an ENFP. The F stands for feeling, oh. and you get a feeling versus thinking score. So the more thinking you are, the less feeling you are, and so forth. And I got a zero for thinking. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but I bet you feel like crazy, don't you? I'm really good at feeling. <laughs> Angela, we're so happy to have you here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. Our theme tonight, rather appropriate, I think, considering our co-host, is Mind Games. (gasps) Excellent. Angela and I will hear out. Our guests will ask them some questions, and then our live audience will vote for a winner. The vote will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Mike Maughan. Hi, Mike. Mike is head of Global Insights at Qualtrics. He's also co-founder of Five for the Fight, a campaign to eradicate cancer. Mike, uh, we are talking tonight about mind games and illusions. Any illusions in your personal history? Yeah, so my worst attempt at creating an illusion came during a soccer game when I was about eight years old. I was so bad that before the game, my mom promised to buy all of my family Slurpees if I just touched the ball (laughs) in the... I didn't, and everybody knew it, but I felt so dumb that, of course, I lied and said that I I touched the ball when I was in a group, as if that's how soccer even works. And that's how you wind up working at a software company. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Mike, we're very happy to have you here with Angela. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first guest, Ty Toshiro? 
Hi, Ty. Who Hello. are you? What do you do? Hi, I'm the author of Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. Ah, uh, okay. That sounds pretty interesting for mind games. So what do you know that you think we don't know that's worth knowing? During a one-on-one conversation, where do awkward people tend to look? Can we get a clue by looking at you right now? <laughs> I'm on my best behavior right now. Are, are you, uh, are, do you mean not in the eyes of the other person? Is that specific enough? That's, uh, that's a good start. It's mm-hmm. a good start. Okay. So eyes are where unawkward people look. Are you considered or do you consider yourself or have you ever considered yourself an awkward person? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. So (laughs) have been, am, will be. Interesting. But you're doing a good job looking at me. So I'm really concentrating right now. You're really working for it. Okay. So how about like to the side or looking at the lips? That's a great guess. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the chin area and the edge of the ear are two places oh, that awkward people will reflexively look. And those are much less information-rich areas than the eye region, as you could imagine. And so it automatically puts the awkward person behind in a social interaction. So you're stating that what you define as awkwardness is a penalty in social interaction, yes? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like getting like a few-second late start in an athletic event. Angela Duckworth, do you know much about awkwardness, uh, you know, kind of definitively, professionally? As a psychologist, um, I guess I know a little bit about shyness, Mm -hmm. right? Is Mm -hmm. awkwardness the same thing as being shy? So shyness and awkwardness are correlated with each other, but the correlation's not that strong. Actually, surprisingly not that strong. There's some awkward people you probably know who are too extroverted. Like, they get up in your space, they're a space invader, they talk a little too loud... That's like the worst possible combination. I mean, in my opinion, yeah, probably. So when you say awkward, how definitive is that? And I assume it's a spectrum. And if so, what share of Americans, let's say, are on that spectrum? Yeah, so awkward characteristics, things like social skill deficits or what we call obsessive interests, really, really loving something that you are interested in. These traits are normally distributed in a bell curve in the general population. So actually, the average person in the general population has a few socially awkward characteristics. But when you get out to, let's say, the 85th, 90th percentile, that's when you start to get somebody who's pretty chronically awkward. It's not the same thing as being on the autism spectrum, right? They're the same exact symptoms, actually. So autism and Asperger's symptoms are on this bell curve and normally distributed. But when you cross the 99th percentile, that's when someone becomes diagnosable. But we haven't really had language to talk about people that might be, let's say, in the 85th, 98th percentile. So what is that when you have social skills that aren't quite that sharp or you have trouble communicating? Um, That's what you would call awkward. Okay, so is the idea then that if you are awkward and you don't want to appear awkward for whatever reason, then the simple is training yourself to look into the eyes of another person when you're speaking with them? Yeah, that's right. So if you put someone in an fMRI who's socially awkward and you watch them look into somebody's eyes, it looks like their brain's on fire. It's like they're looking into the sun for too long. (laughs) And so you have to train yourself. Yeah, kind of a graded exposure to get to a place where you can tolerate it. And it's you about, do it more and more, and then it's not so bad. That's right. And it's only about 3.1 seconds that the average person looks into somebody's eyes before they break eye contact. You know what my trick is, is when I have to talk to someone and I'm feeling awkward, and you feel that eye contact is more intimate than you want it, I just take off my glasses. And I can't, <laughs> I can't even... can't see them. No, I can't even tell that you're a human anymore. You're just... <laughs> 
So um, that's a good strategy. You know, yeah. my other strategy. I wonder what you think of this one. When I'm in a cranky mood and people are irritating me, like walking on the street or in a room, whatever, I picture them as dogs. Because um, I've never met a dog that, that I didn't, didn't have. Like. Yeah, you look at the ugliest, mangiest, nastiest dog, and they're like, "Oh, what a nice dog!" But um, so wait, where's the word "awkward" come from? Do you know? So "awkward" actually comes from the word "afugur," and "afugur" is an old Norse word, and it means facing a different direction or oh, facing no the wrong kidding. direction if you're pessimistic. Oh. That's great. That is great. I like that definition because it explains why awkward people might miss certain social cues or social expectations, but it also explains why awkward people also tend to be more creative and tend to see certain things that maybe most people wouldn't see. Because they are literally looking in a different direction instead of wasting all this time making eye contact. Exactly. Awkward people kind of see the world as if it's spotlighted. So they focus on unusual information in social interactions, and that's why they miss some of these key cues. Uh, Mike Tai Tashiro has been telling us about the different facets of awkwardness. Anything in there that catches your ear? Yeah, so it's true. Awkward people are bad at eye contact. But they're also bad at lots of things. So they're bad at talking to people. They're bad at detecting normal human emotions. And they're especially too honest and share way too much information. Um, And then there's this piece of conventional wisdom that if you make eye contact for more than six seconds, it means either sex or murder. (laughs) Or the person has slipped into a coma. (laughs) Thank you, Mike and Ty Tashiro. Thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next guest, Joanna Devaney. Hi, Joanna. Hi. Where are you from? What do you do? So I'm an assistant professor of music theory and cognition at Ohio State University, although I'm teaching at NYU this year. And I study the singing voice using tools for music, psychology, and computer science. Excellent. Are you awkward? Probably. I have a PhD. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what do you have for us tonight? So I'm going to talk about auditory illusions. So when I was giving my bio to you, you probably noticed that I was just speaking. I pre-recorded myself giving my bio, and I've made an auditory illusion out of it. My research focuses on studying the singing voice... My research focuses on studying the singing voice. My research focuses on studying the singing voice. My research focuses on studying the singing voice. 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 I'm an assistant professor of music theory and cognition at the Ohio State University, although I'm teaching at NYU this year. And my research focuses on studying the singing voice using tools for music psychology and computer science. Now, what probably most of you noticed to some degree was the part that you heard repeated actually emerged when you heard the whole sentence, if not quite singing, but as something that was much more musical than the rest of the text. But I can assure you that there was nothing done. The acoustics were exactly the same way as when I said it the first time to you. That was incredible. Did you hear it? I did. It felt like the more often I heard it, the more I heard a melody. So is that the illusion? Exactly. So when you hear it repeated, you start to attend to the pitch information in the speech. Whereas when you're just listening to somebody speak, particularly in a non-tonal language like English, Uh you just discard that information. Hmm. And then it sounded, so then when you hear it in the middle of a sentence, it still sounds 
musical. Right. So it kind of jumps out, especially because before and after, you're only hearing speech. So let me ask you this. If it's the case that we can experience the melodic nature of talking when we have a repeated or magnified exposure to it like that, does that mean that even when we don't notice it, that the melodic nature of the speech is doing something to us subconsciously? It doesn't seem so. So the person who first found this illusion uh, was a professor at UCSD called Diana Deutsch, and she did some experiments using audiobooks, and she had people put into an MRI. And what she found was that after she repeated the component and then put it back, that there was actually different brain activity. So when you hear it the first time, it's happening much lower in the auditory cortex, and when you hear this song, it's actually happening higher, which means that there is a perceptual shift happening. So when does this happen in real life, like outside of university fMRI machines? (laughs) Does it happen in real life? So it probably only happens when you would randomly hear something repeated and then come back. And the story as to when she heard it was she was editing her own voice in a CD she was putting together and then noticed it and then went on to investigate it. But the reason why it's interesting is because it does tell you something about perception that you may not get to any other way. I've always just been curious and kind of um, grateful for the effect that music has on us. And I wonder if maybe, you know, if, if there's any way to appreciate the melodic nature of just speech and connect to it the way that music kind of literally transports us. Probably if it's a language you don't speak. If it's a language you don't yeah. speak, why, right? Why is that? Because once you hear the semantic content, you start to attend to that. And that's more attention getting. But it's probably more likely that you would be attending to the tone because you don't actually understand what the content is. Do you have other examples of auditory illusion that have nothing to do with the melodic nature of speech? Are you interested in music ones or speech ones? I'm interested in speech, yeah. Okay, so there is a concept called phonemic restoration where... I'm interested in music. Okay. No, 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 I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, please, actually, please the phonemic restoration, restoration is yeah. actually quite relevant to what's going on here right now because if you take speech and you chop it up and insert little gaps, if you were to be played that, you wouldn't actually necessarily understand the speech because you'd be hearing these silences. But if you put noise in where those gaps were, you would understand it. So this is actually something where it helps us understand a little bit about what humans do when they're processing information. So we can't actually understand speech when pieces are missing as long as there's some noise there. How about um, musical illusions, right? Could we take the other path? Yeah, so there actually is a phenomenon called the shepherd tone, which is similar to the uh, visual illusion that you get with an Escher staircase. So in the visual illusion, as you go up the stairs, you seem to continually be going up the stairs And in this example, the synthetic tones that are constructed in such a way that they just go up 12 steps and then repeat, but you hear them as continually going up or continually going down. And I'm going to give you a demo right now. have to ask, this is theoretically and realistically fascinating. Practically, uh, are there implications that we could identify with? So I think that in terms of the layperson, 
You think that because you hear something, that's actually what's going on in the world, but hearing is actually an act of perception, much in the same way that when there was, is it white and gold or is it black and blue dress oh, that yes. went around the internet? Yeah. yeah. And so people started to realize that vision was actually an act of perception, that hearing is actually an act mm. of perception too. Mike Maughan, uh, Joanna Devaney's been telling us that hearing is an act of perception and about auditory illusions. Do you have anything to add, correct, etc.? Yeah, so auditory illusions are very real. We see them all the time. Uh, one thing you talked about is the shepherd tone, which is this auditory illusion used often in movies. So most recently in the war movie Dunkirk, it's like this barber pole of sound which seems to be moving, but it's not going anywhere because there are three different octaves being played, and at any one point, the highest octave starts to get quieter while the low octave starts to get louder, and the middle octave remains constant, so it makes you feel like you're constantly ascending. It, it builds suspense in the human uh, soul, but really, there's no change to the music. Good stuff, Mike Maughan, and good stuff, Joanna Devaney. Thank you so much for playing. Tell me something right now. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests will make Angela Duckworth tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can follow us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. We will be right back. Adam Conover. You might know me from my TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, but now I'm going deeper as the host of the new podcast, Factually, out now on Earwolf. We dive in with exceptional experts from professors to Pulitzer Prize winners to reveal shocking truths from around the world of human knowledge. And, you know, I do my best to make it funny. It's an investigative comedy podcast for curious people who never stop asking questions. Factually is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is Mike Maughan, and tonight's co-host is Angela Duckworth. Before we get back to the game, we have some questions written especially for you, Angela. You ready? I'm excited. Yes. You are not only a psychology professor and the grit lady, but a mom. So how gritty are your kids? My kids are 14 and 15, so not yet that gritty. <laughs> and does that um, get under your skin, or are you, co- you okay We're with working that? on it. It's, they're trending in the right direction. They are, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, um, what's the one story that your family always tells about you? Nobody likes to tell the one story that they're... Okay. Mm. Um, my uh, story, I guess, is that when I was little, like really little, I, I adamantly refused to answer to Angie and I only wanted to be called baby for like a long time. I don't know what that says about me, but yeah, it's sort of sweet. So um, your thing, grit, happens to rhyme with quit. Is that unfortunate? (laughs) Um, I think it's okay. I think we're going to stick with it. It's a pretty great word. It's a great word. Tell us about something you once quit and how it worked out. I quit piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't play piano. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Were your parents distraught in the moment? No, my parents were like not tiger parents. Mm-hmm. They were um, like neglectful, like not very involved, but nice people. But they did not have time to tiger parent me, I think. Um, what's the best decision you ever made to not do something? 
um, to marry any of my ex-boyfriends. Mm. Uh, what do you collect and why? I don't collect anything. I'm like the opposite of a hoarder. Mm-hmm. I don't collect no books. I don't have no worldly possessions that mm. I care about. Do you, do you go into people's, other people's homes and throw away their stuff? I would like to. What's something that you spent way too much money on but don't regret? Okay, well, there's something that my daughters spend a lot of money on that I don't think I regret. So, you know, in Uber where you can add a tip? Mm-hmm. So I've taught my kids to be generous. They have been adding $5 tips to every <laughs> single Uber ride that they have ever taken. Uh-huh. Um, what's something that you believed to be true for a long time and until you found out that you were wrong? Uh, I believe for a long time that either you're the kind of person who likes to read the sports section of the newspaper or you're not the kind of person Mm. who likes to Mm. read the sports section of the newspaper. And I was always the kind of person who didn't like to read it. Mm. And now I know what the teams are and I know the things that are in the thing and I'm like reading some of the sports section of the newspaper. Uh And finally, Angela Duckworth, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, uh, what do you think you would have done instead? Uh, Well, maybe I'd be a food writer, Mm because then you could cook and write Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be a food writer. What are your favorite kinds of food? uh, I don't know. Actually, the funny thing is, I think I like food writing more than I like food. Oh. Yeah. uh, Like, I read the New York Times food section. I never go to any of the restaurants. I rarely make any of the recipes, but I love, yeah, it's like food porn. Uh, Angela Duckworth, nicely done. Thank you so much. All right, let's get back to our little game. Would you please welcome our next guest, KG Hammond. Hi there, KG. Good evening, Stephen. Why don't you tell us what you do? So I am the specialist of mineral deposits at the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City. And what's that mean day to day? What do you do? Are you in the museum? Are you out there looking for things? Yeah, so we're in the museum looking at, you know, ores of copper and iron and gold and radioactive rocks like uranium and Mm. such. And we're in charge of the collection. And we also do research with that to see how these form and how that works with the water inside our planet. But don't we know how those minerals react in the, the earth with water and stuff? Or is there a lot left to know? Well, yeah, so there's still a lot left to know. So we know that there's, you know, roughly 18 times more water inside our planet than all of our oceans combined. And that's coming up to the surface, bringing up heavy metals, and that's used for our electronics, and it's essential to our daily lives. I want to know what you have for us. Is it in the form of a a riddle or a question? That's a real question. So... Say you're, you know, uh, out in the desert somewhere, you know, panning for gold. Okay. And, you know, a common thing you find with gold is fool's gold. So the question I have is, what is a quick and easy way to distinguish between gold and fool's gold? What's the real name for fool's gold? The fool's gold is called pyrite. Pyrite. Which is iron uh, combined with sulfur. So it's an iron sulfide. Is it like lighter or heavier than gold? Uh, yeah, so gold tends to be slightly denser. So if you have like a scale with you, I, I suppose that's... Uh, but the implication is that they look enough alike that it's very, very hard to tell them apart, correct? That's the, yes, uh, a trained eye can tell them apart. Um, oh. However, depending on how rough they are, it might not be as 
easy. You know, uh-huh. they've been you know, sitting in a stream bed or you just uh, picked it out of a wall somewhere. So. so your question is, what's an easy and accurate way to do Does that have anything to do with smell? Um, sort that's of. A getting good, there. That's a good guess. But wrong. Because of the sulfur. Yeah. Because of, you know. Someone in the audience said either bite me or bite it. <laughs> 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 oh, the taste. Yeah, the taste. Exactly. Should you bite it? So, really? That what did yes, So the general answer will be use your mouth. Yeah. So I actually brought some pieces if you're interested Which in is trying that? this out. Yeah. So actually... Give I, me the gold. You can have the fool's gold. Oh, okay, sure. So <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable bringing a gold nugget on the subway. So uh, <laughs> these are pretty easy to tell apart. However, uh, if you were to you know, put your tongue on these... Angela, I'm going to let oh you do God. the biting. Oh, I get to bite it. So... Um, for our radio audience, I should say that it's a, like a, a tiny piece of gold wire that yep. would barely keep down a piece of paper. Yep. And then this is a cute little bear oh, standing on a piece of fool's gold. Yeah. I think that's piss? made of lead. Don't lick the bear. Oh, don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll try to avoid but, that. Yeah, it's a, it's a decorative piece. Yeah. Am I so supposed to lick this? So we want her to lick him or bite him? Try licking it. So you can this lick like the So pocket. try the gold first. <laughs> You want to be the food, the food writer, right? So okay, you can tell yeah. us about the taste. <laughs> huh? Feel free to take it out. It or? doesn't taste like anything. <laughs> okay, so it doesn't taste like anything. Okay, what about? Does it taste like something? Well, what about okay. the other one? For the record, Angela Duckworth has about a three-pound piece of um, rock on her mouth. <laughs> And Mike Mon's taking a picture of her. <laughs> Feel free to take it off. Whatever. Oh, well, I can taste this one. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does it taste like? It tastes like a pencil. Hmm. Pencil. Yummy. Interesting. So you noticed a taste. What was it? You so said like a pencil. So this one tastes like yucky and metallic, and the gold one doesn't taste like anything. Exactly. So gold is also known as a noble metal. So it doesn't react with many things. So when you place it on your tongue, it's not really going to you know, react with the you know, water in your saliva. It's just going to sit there, and so there's no real flavor. However, the fool's gold, the pyrite, which has iron and sulfur in it, will break down uh, when it comes in contact with your saliva, and then you're going to taste that bloody iron flavor yes. pretty immediately. Yeah. Right, which I identified mm. as pencil, but I or think pencils. you were right. Bloody <laughs> iron is better. Bloody iron. <laughs> so when um, Olympians get a gold medal and they bite it, is that just symbolic or are they actually trying to see if it tastes like nothing and therefore is real? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts. I think one is, you know, you want to leave your teeth mark on it to say that it's yours. Oh. But yes, you can also bite it to uh, make sure that it's Wait, real gold. Wait, when you get an Olympic gold medal, is it really gold? Should be. Um, I'm not a gold medalist. I can't confirm any of that. Like Mike that and I, I do know this. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, so they, they put gold in it, but a lot of times they'll make the design such that they don't have to put very much. Because they're big. Yes, I've held a bunch of gold medals. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well. Oh, because of Michael Phelps. He hangs out with Michael Phelps sometimes. I've hung out with you Michael have Phelps. Hung out That's with pretty Michael. different. <laughs> I'm not going to bite this one. But yeah, it'll be yeah. much, much harder. My teeth not very good for your teeth. Yeah. yeah. But you'll have the jaws to do it, right? You I know, right. That, exactly. Yeah. I do. So, is licking or biting random rocks ever bad for you? I mean, it, it sounds like you're saying this is a kind of neat way to identify certain kinds of rocks, yeah? It is, yeah. Um, so, it's useful in identifying uh, minerals. So, rocks are an assemblage of 
minerals, and you know, depending on the elements inside it, your taste buds can pick up those elements, and they'll help you differentiate them. It's also a texture thing. So uh, some rocks, for example, there's this rock called kaolinite, which is used for uh, collecting aluminum. And uh, it's like a porous rock. So if you were to stick your tongue on that, uh, it's almost like a capillary effect, and your tongue sticks right to that. That sounds like a really bad idea, right? Like... First of all, you're licking a rock, and then second of all, your tongue just adheres can, can to Can I just it. say you just spent the last 20 minutes licking a rock? I know. I didn't yeah. think it was a good idea, but I'm, you know, on stage. What is the difference between a mineral and a rock? So a uh, mineral has to um, have, you know, a certain chemical formula and a repeating crystal structure, just, you know, one chemical like, item compared to a rock, which is an assemblage of various minerals. So a rock is like a mixture. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Mike Mon, KG Hammond has been telling us why we should lick rocks and other elements of appreciation of rocks. Can you add anything to that, please? Yes, so it is a fairly common practice to lick rocks <laughs> <It's> <laughs> among geologists. Uh-huh. Um, Urban Dictionary, it's always wise to read that in public. Um, <laughs> Urban Dictionary states that licking the rock means doing hardcore drugs, such as cocaine or meth. (laughs) There's a a television show called My Strange Addiction, and they once featured a woman named Teresa who says she's been eating rocks every day for 20 years and can't stop. It's believed that she may suffer from a scantily researched disorder (laughs) called pica, which may be caused by mineral deficiencies, such as an iron deficiency which can come as a result of celiac disease or hookworm. Uh, and interesting, the most obsessive sommeliers are sometimes called cork dorks, and they lick rocks to help train their palate. Ah, interesting. That makes sense. Mike Mon, full of good stuff. Thank you so much. And KG Hammond, thank you so much for telling us something we did not know. It is time for one last break. When we return, a couple more guests, and then you, our live audience, will pick a winner. That's right after this. Welcome back. It's time for our next guest. Would you please welcome Robin Bell? Come on up, Robin. Hey there, Robin. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Great, thanks. What do you do? Um, I'm a scientist at Lamont Doherty. It's part of Columbia University, and I study ice. I study ice in Antarctica and Greenland and how it flows and how it fractures. I don't taste it too much. Uh, And when you say you study this, this sounds as if you go there personally, yes? Yeah, I personally go there. You've been to Antarctica, let's say, how many times? Like, say, seven times. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what kind of field work do you do? Are you examining? Are you experimenting? Well, so we, like, put stuff on airplanes and, like, fly over the ice sheets and Mm. look inside it, kind of like you would with an MRI, Mm -hmm. and we can see what it's made of, and then we look for what's underneath, and that's where... You know, we see minerals and volcanoes and lakes and all sorts of cool stuff. Mm. Have you personally been part of a team that's discovered, let's say, geologic, uh, you know, formations or, or, or structures? Yeah, we were once flying around and doing our measurements like, you know, scientists and geeks normally do. And we came back and we'd seen this hole in the ice sheet and like the ice sheet was sunk down. But underneath there was a pointy thing. It's like, well, I wonder what that might be. It turns out it was a volcano. 
It was a no volcano, kidding. and the hole was because it was melting, melting. the ice. Wow. Uh, did you name it after yourself? No. Yeah. <laughs> I think only men name things after themselves. I totally have this theory. Like, always naming things. Like, women right. do not name things yeah. after ourselves. Yeah. It's dumb to name things after yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so Robin, uh, what do you know that you think we don't know that's worth knowing? Well, where am I to find out that rivers run uphill? Where might you find out that rivers run uphill? Right. I'm going to say Antarctica, since you've just been yeah. telling us that you go there. Would might that, be a, be, a, would that uh, be a correct answer? Maybe one of the places it would happen. But why, does, why would yeah. they run uphill in Antarctica? Yeah. Does it have to do with uh, some kind of magnetic, uh, electromagnetic force of the minerals? Mm, we tasted water and it doesn't have much iron in it, so no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good, that was a good guess, though. Is it, are they being sucked uphill somehow? You have to counter gravity, right? Yeah, you have to work against gravity. Are these like big rivers? They go like 60, 70 miles. Oh, that's a that's a, that's big a river. decent river. That's I mean, it's not as big as the river. Hudson. It's not like but... a tiny little. There's ice, and then under the ice, way down is water. Correct. Right. There's like two miles of ice. Okay. So maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something there. Are we are we getting warmer or colder? Here, I'll give you a hint. What if you had a hose in your backyard and you wanted to make the water go up the oh, hill? Oh, you, you crimp oh, it. Oh, I see. And go. Yeah, you jump on. Well, that's what the ice sheet's doing. It's sitting on top of the oh, oh, you're river, kidding. so it's squishing the bottom part and squeezing the water up the hill. But constantly enough to make yeah. a river run uphill for sixty well, you know, or seventy once you miles. Get a, yeah, you want to get a slope of ice that, Holy you know, cow. 60, so you get two miles of ice and it's leaning arc. that away. Were you among those who discovered this phenomenon or was it known before you went there? We found this mountain range that's like totally covered with wow. ice. There's no rocks sticking out. And in every valley there's water and the ice sheets making wow. it go backwards. Is the river above ground? No, it's below the it's, ice. How far Everything's below, below the ice. Can you see the river at no. all? Well, when we fly over it and zap it with radar energy, we can. So what happens to the water when it goes all the way up then? Well, it goes all the way up and then the ice gets thin and it freezes back on. It just can't go any further. Uh-huh, yeah. And then it just stops. But doesn't that just plug up the whole river? No, because the ice is flowing. Oh, the whole thing oh, is the whole flowing. ice is like trying to slowly slide to the ocean. So Do we sound free- like we don't know that much about polar ice caps? We really don't know. <laughs> Can we ask some basic questions? My Uber driver the other day said, like, total myth, climate change. Complete myth. Al Gore made millions. What do you think about well, that? Well, if the Uber driver had asked me, you know, are the ice sheets changing or are you making it up? I'd say, I'm not making it up. There's like three lines of evidence. We measure them three different ways. We can see them going faster. You know, we look at the edges of the ice sheet, and they used to be going a mile a year. They're going two miles a year. Wow, that's... It's faster. Yeah. And then because it's like silly putty, and it gets stretched, it's getting lower. So we can see the edge of the ice sheet where it's going faster is dropping down. That's a second measurement. And then the third one is where we actually measure how much it weighs from space. It's losing mass. So I just say, you know, you have three the, the, I, reasons to we believe. We have three measures I can show you it. That's the evidence you can decide for yourself. That's, yeah, I wish the Uber driver were here to. <laughs> <laughs> she could have told him. Mike Maughan, Robin Bell from Columbia's Mont Doherty Earth Observatory has been telling us about rivers that run uphill in Antarctica. What more can you add? 
Well, first I want to say that only 8% of monuments are named after women. <laughs> oh, so this is this is true, but anyone who's used the Boomerang app already knows that you can make water run <laughs> in the wrong direction. Um, but th- this is a true phenomenon seen in a number of places. You can see it in waves. They're powered by wind, and that, that takes it against gravity. Tsunamis often triggered by earthquakes. Uh, but this, I, this, what you've been talking about, the pressure is seen in Antarctica. Another place where water can run uphill, if you will, is through something called capillary action, which is what you see when you put a paper towel in water. That said, when all of this is said and done, gravity is like aging and you can only fight it for so long, and eventually it just wins, so it's a losing battle. Mike Mon, thank you, and Robin Bell, thank you so much for playing Telling Something I Don't Know. Great job. And would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Karen Huang. Karen, come on up. Hi, Karen. Nice to have you. What do you do? I'm a PhD candidate at Harvard, and I study social psychology, such as how people have conversations with each other. Sounds good. Our theme, mind games, you'll recall. You are the last one to go tonight, so make it good. What do you have for us? So let's say you're on a first date. What's a good way to have the other person want to go on a second date with you? I'm single, and I'm taking notes. So... (laughs) So you're getting your PhD, so I'm sure there's a a rigor. But I do have this theory, which is if you are on a date with someone, or indeed anywhere with a stranger, if if you can communicate two things, then they're going to like you. And the first thing is, I like you, right? So like, if I want you to like me, I'm just going to, you know, express that I like you so super much. And then I'm going to get the second thing is that I like myself. So if I like you and I like myself, then you're going to like me. What do you think about that? It's my theory. You should try. It works. I, it sounds perfectly it plausible. I like works. it. The anti-Duckworth theory of mutual yes. likability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No data, but yeah. I'm just, it's a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there is evidence of similarity effects so, and, and reciprocity. So if I show that mm-hmm. I like you, you will tend to like me back. Um, but, but the problem is if you don't, actually like yourself and you're pretending to like yourself well then you have a whole other set of problems right (laughs) yeah so um well that is that is probably pretty intuitive right um but the strategy i have in mind is probably not as intuitive intuitive. uh does it involve some kind of spoken communication yes it does is it uh related in any way accidentally to what we heard about earlier in the melodic nature of conversation Good guess. It doesn't have anything to do with tone um, or how you're delivering it. It more has to do with um, the content or the structure hmm. of what so you're flattery? saying. flattery? Flattery? Like complimenting the other person? Um, so I can just give you the answer. You want? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can keep guessing, but... Uh, We're not really getting any more. It has to do with the content you're saying. Um, should you talk about... Ooh, is it, um, is it something about, like, stories versus facts? Mm, getting a little bit closer. So, for instance, should you be talking about yourself? Should you be sharing oh. a story about mm. yourself? Um, should you be saying something on the news that just happened? Mm. Um, Don't talk about yourself lines. too much on a first date. Don't talk too much about yourself. Talk about the other about person. It's talk related. About- 
Yeah. It's all about you. It's all I want to make it all about you. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Right, right, you should right, show exactly. that you are fascinated. I, I, already, I feel so flattered already. Right, because we're asking all these questions and we're really interested. Yeah, exactly. So you can try asking a lot of questions, specifically follow-up questions. Questions that follow up on what the other person had talked about uh, in their prior turn of the conversation. Which indicates that you're actually listening to what the first question's answer was, exactly. yes? Exactly. It shows that you're um, accurately understanding what the other person is saying, um, that you respect what they're saying, and that you care to know more. And so you ask a follow-up question that asks them to say more about what they just talked about. So is this, is this a skill that can be practiced? Have you figured out how to teach this to people? And if I repeat Angela's question, does that count as my follow-up question? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we conducted several studies. Um, we found that in a speed dating study where um, people went on 10 to 15 speed dates, we found that people who asked more follow-up questions got more second dates. Um, and to answer your question, Angela, um, we found that there were some people who were better question askers across all dates. So that suggests that question asking could be a stable trait. Um, but we also conducted some experiments where we instructed people to ask questions. So in one study, we had people chat with each other for 15 minutes, uh, totally non-dating context, and um, we instructed one partner of each dyad to ask either many questions or few questions, and afterwards, participants indicated how much they liked the other person, um, and we found that people who asked more questions were better liked, and particularly people who asked more follow-up questions were better liked. So this shows that question asking is a skill that could be learned because we gave people these explicit instructions to ask questions, and they were remarkably good at following our instructions. Can I ask, what does it look like or sound like when the person is not doing this? Like, what is the opposite of asking these engaging, you know, empathic follow-up questions? That happens when people are asking questions that deflect the conversation topic away from what the other person was talking about. So say you were talking about your day, and then I just deflect the conversation totally to another topic that's unrelated. So like, Angela would be telling me about her day, and I'd say, huh, I wonder what I should name that volcano that I discovered. Like that? Exactly. Um, but isn't there, there's got to be like either diminishing returns or negative returns, right? Because there's a fine line between like empathic and annoying. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We also had a separate sample of participants read the transcripts of the conversations that we collected, and we had them indicate uh, how much they liked each partner in the conversation and how much they predicted each person liked the other person. And we find that um, people observing a conversation um, tend to like high-question recipients more than high-question askers. And this is probably because high-question recipients, when they're answering a lot of questions, are revealing a lot more information about themselves, their thoughts, their feelings, their stories, and thus they seem like more interesting complete people. And so this suggests that there is likely a balance between question asking and revealing information about yourself. So Mike Mon, um, Karen Wong is telling us about research of hers in which question asking, particularly follow-up question asking, seems to increase likability. Can you tell us anything on that further? Yes, so it appears that this is true uh, with the obvious caveat that we've talked about tonight, 
that you can't ask so many that it feels like you're interrogating. What's not completely clear yet is how well this works beyond a short-term kind of speed dating session and, and what that means in longer-term relationships. Thank you, Mike, and thank you so much, Karen Wong, for playing. Great job. Can we give one more hand to all our guests tonight? I thought that was great stuff. Thank you, everybody. It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. But first, Angela Duckworth, Mike Vaughn, and I will weigh in on some of our favorites. Remember, everybody, the three criteria. Number one, did our guests tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And three, was it demonstrably true? Angela, I'm curious to know what tickled your fancy tonight. Ooh, this might be just because she went last, but I really liked Karen's yep. question. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to use it, like, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. do you need to make like you? Everybody likes you already. No, I need to get people to like, you know, because I want to ask them for money. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> do you want to try right here? you got a couple hundred people. Some of them might, uh, <laughs> must have a little bit of money. I'll practice after the show. All I'm right. going to practice. All right. Mike Maughan, what caught your ear? So I thought we had a lot of fascinating things today. Uh, as we looked at Joanna's and the auditory illusions, especially as you see those effects in so many movies, I found a wonderful book called The Beginner's Guide to Licking Rocks. And then this idea that, that rivers are running uphill. Never heard that before. I am just glad that I don't have to cast a vote because it's hard. I shared your enthusiasm for Karen Wong's research. I also found uh, Tai Tashiro talking about awkwardness What I loved about that topic, it's one of those things that's sitting right there that anybody could have attacked and and figured out, um, but we didn't, and and Ty has, but I I really liked everything tonight. Now it is time for our audience to vote. So please take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. Who will it be? Ty Tashiro with How Not to Look Awkward. Joanna Devaney with Auditory Illusions. KG Hammond with Why You Should Lick Rocks. Robin Bell with Rivers That Run Uphill, or Karen Wong with Question Asking Increases Likeability. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to listen to this show without ads, you can sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Thank you very much. Okay, our audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guests. Our winner tonight, thank you so much for telling us how to not look awkward. Ty Tashiro, congratulations. (laughs) To commemorate your victory, Ty, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge. Thank you so much. And that's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to Angela and Mike, to our guests, and especially thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I know. Have a great night. Thank you. Next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, the Broadway actress Sass Goldberg joins me as co-host to learn about panhandling, warehouse farming, and secondhand wedding dresses. I like to know what do they have for breakfast? Do they like overnight oats? Do they like hot oatmeal? Who have they slept with? I want to know everything. So <laughs> that's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. 
Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, Andrew Dunn, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Also, thanks to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting the show together. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. 